If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Growing food very closely to where we live is imperative. And the more urban farms that we can get growing food, the more decentralized the system is, the stronger the system will be. That was Greg Peterson, a green living and sustainability innovator, the podcast host of Urban Farm, and the creator of Urban Farm U, which is an educational platform that teaches people how to easily grow food no matter where we live. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how urban farming may be the answer to addressing the affordability and accessibility of healthily grown foods, why we should get inspired to grow some of our own foods, even if we have the convenience of being close to supermarkets, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. When I was 14, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans, and that was in 1974, 1975. Wow. So I, I inherently knew that there was something wrong back then, you know, to write about it and to speak about it. I was also, back then, I was very, very interested in aquaculture, fish farming. And the funny part is I live in the desert. But the fish farming piece turned into a eight-year adventure from 1975 to about 1984, where I was cleaning, servicing, and building fish ponds here in Phoenix. And at the same time, I was building aquaculture ponds for people to harvest fish out of. So I'm curious for you, your love for nature was definitely very innate. How did you get into urban farming specifically, and what inspired you to then start an educational platform around it? It's always been with me. This notion of, oh my gosh, I need to know where my food comes from. And in 1991, there were there were three or four pivotal things that happened for me. The first one was that I did 
my first permaculture design course. And for me, permaculture is the art and science of how we work with nature. How do we get in the flow and work with nature? Because the way that we have been living on the planet has never made sense to me. We're, you know, we're extractive and we use up. And what I know about that is that that's not going to work long term. And permaculture gave me a view into a different way of doing that. And that's just working with nature. The second thing that happened in 1991 is I read a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Mm. He got very clear how we as human beings came to dominate the planet and suggests in Ishmael things that we can do. The third thing that happened in 1991 is I did a landmark education course called the Advanced Course, where I had to create my vision for my life on the planet. And what I created in, in the fall of 1991, realize that's almost 30 years ago, is that I am the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Wow. Not, not like, a, Greg, this is what you have to do but more like a, that's what gets me up in the morning. So here we are almost 30 years later, and that's what's getting me up in the morning is like, okay, good. So my, my vision, my, what I'm supposed to be doing on the planet is transforming the global food system. How do I do that? Well, I do it in a podcast. I do it with online courses. I do it with local events like our annual mesquite bean flour milling event that we do every year. These things just light me up. And then the fourth thing that happened, 1991 was a pivotal year for me. The fourth thing that happened for me in 1991 was a friend of mine went sailing to the South Pacific and they anchored in a harbor on this small island looking for a grocery store. And when they got onto the island, the people living on the island kind of looked at them funny and said, go pick your stuff. You know, just go pick it. There's no grocery stores here. And he came back and shared that story with me. And, and that was, I think that of the four things that happened for me in 2000 or in 1991, I think that was the most pivotal one. It's like, oh, wow. What if we could just grow food everywhere? For you as one of the early pioneers in the space, you must have really comprehensive insights and a bird's eye view of our current model of food production and consumption. So can you shed some light for us on what is broken about our current food system and what we need to know about that? Oh my gosh. So <clears throat> the curious thing about our current food system is what makes it good and what makes it bad at the same time. And that is we live in a culture that has a just-in-time food system. And there's actually a documentary on Channel 8 from about 10 or 12 years ago that shows how it works. And it's pretty dang miraculous on how efficient it is. The other side of the coin for that, though, is, is that if there is a breakdown in the system, and I'm not talking catastrophic breakdown, I'm talking about a trucker strike or a power outage. In 2013, I think, San Diego County had a three-day power outage. In, the, in September, and that significantly impacted the food system. Mm. So there's a piece of data out there, a piece of research that was done, I believe, in Europe, at one of the universities, that, that identifies that we have a three-day food system available in any urban area. Food availability for three days, and I actually say food on the shelves in grocery stores would last three hours. Because once, if there was a power outage or if there was a 
trucker strike or any of the you know hundreds of possible things that could happen, people are going to get wind of that and go clear out the grocery stores. Mm. So we have to figure out how to create our own food systems around us that would, you know, that, that's really, it's our backup plan. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is called the SAD diet. You know the SAD diet, don't you? Heard of it, yes. Yeah, it's called the standard American diet. It Generally, it's processed food and it makes people, you know, obese and gives them diabetes. Diabetes is one of the fastest growing diseases out there. And it's most significantly impacted by what we, you know, what we put in our mouth. Mm. So there's a, there's a level of consciousness that I'm trying to bring to people around the standard American diet and around our struggling food system. And that doesn't even include the nutritional value of food that is grown and harvested and then shipped. Because one of the things you may not know is that if you pick a tomato in Peru or South America, it needs to be picked when it's not ripe. And plants make the most nutritional density in the fruits that they're making as the fruit is ripening. There's another, there's actually another interesting piece about that. And that is there's lectins in most plants and lectins are called an anti-nutrient. Basically too many lectins will cause inflammation in your body. And when things are picked, not ripe, they're higher in lectins. So a lot of our food, in fact, I was in seed school in 2011 in Tucson. And while I was in seed school, there was an article that came out in USA Today that said two-thirds of our fruits and vegetables come from overseas. And what they, I did some research, and what they meant by overseas was outside of the U.S. The incredible thing is, is that most of them can be grown here in the U.S. So if we're growing locally, we're getting fresher. We're getting more nutrient-dense food than if something is shipped from South America. So on the one hand, within the United States, we really have a centralized food system where perhaps a few agro-businesses kind of dominate the field. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, a lot of our food is currently imported from abroad. So it has huge implications on the nutritional levels within our foods. Right. And really, the solution is figuring out how to grow food locally. I believe, and I know this is a bold statement, I believe that there, that urban farming is the solution to our global food system. It's, you know, our global food problem. It's growing food very closely to where we live is imperative. And the more urban farms that we can get growing food, the more decentralized the system is, the stronger the system will be. Well, I feel like this has really become quite common knowledge at this point. But what do you think is stopping us from being able to transform our food system when it's so obvious that what we have right now really benefits nobody except the very people at the top of the agricultural system? Hmm. Because, you know, no farm workers in the back end or consumers on the front end want this unhealthy food system. It's not good for the field right. workers. It's not good for the people that eat it. So what's stopping us from collectively being able to spark change? Because we have the power of numbers. We do. 
I think there's a couple of things that are in our way. And interestingly enough, you know, I've had three decades of watching the economy as opposed to people's interest in growing food. And when the economy is down, people are much more interested in growing your own food. When the stock market crashed, I think it was in 2010, there was a huge stock market crash. Maybe it was 2009. And that evening that that happened, I was giving a lecture at one of my local venues called Changing Hands Bookstore. And I usually get 30 or 40 people at my lecture. We had 267 people show up that night for my talk. Wow. So I think that there's this level of, you know what, everything's okay that people have, especially when the economy is as good as it is. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part, which is probably more significant, is actually finding people that are willing to do the work because farming isn't easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intention. It takes persistent. It takes not giving up. And quite honestly, I've been looking for somebody for almost a year here in Phoenix to do a project that they would own, and I would coach them into it, and nobody has really shown up yet. Mm. So let me tell you a little bit about the urban farm. The urban farm is my house. I've been here for 30 years. It's a third of an acre. That's 80 feet wide by 160 feet deep. This is not a big piece of property. And when I went back to school at Arizona State University as a 40-year-old, one of the things that I did is I farmed my front and backyard and went to the farmer's market. It's one of the ways that I made some money. And I would, working very part-time, I was making two to $300 a week for what would really equate to be about a day's worth of work a week. Mm. You know, and when I say a day's work, probably a good 12 to 14 hours, but that 12 to 14 hours is spread over the entire week. And it's simple to raise food in your front and backyard. If you have a thousand square feet, if you follow the Mel Bartholomew's method, the square foot gardening, you can grow enough food in a thousand square feet for your family. Mm. So I think there, you know, I think there's a level of interest that when, when the economy turns down, it gets greater. I've seen it over and over again. Do you think part of the struggle is that for whatever reason, I feel like manual labor is seen as something that's not as sophisticated with our current societal values? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's clear. Joel Salatin wrote a book called Folks, This Ain't Right. I actually had him on my podcast, Urban Farm Podcast, maybe a year and a half or so ago. And one of the chapters in the book is all about chores and kids aren't required to do chores anymore. You know, when I was a kid, I had a paper out. I cleaned fish ponds. I cleaned the swimming pool in my backyard. I walked dogs when I was super young and we're just not seeing that out of today's youth. I've lived on the street here for, like I said, 30 years and I've never had of the 50 or so young people that have grown up on my street. I've never had one of them say, Hey, I'll mow your grass for you, which I would have been all over when I was a kid. I think that is inherently the problem. We've trained our young people that it's not cool to have to do labor. On a similar note, one of the things that I feel like has really influenced our food system is also urbanization and how it's disconnected consumers from their food sources to the point where people are often supporting practices 
through their purchases that really don't align with their personal values of what they would like to see. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on how exactly urbanization has shifted or impacted or reshaped our current food system. Well, Daniel Quinn talks about in Ishmael and his other writings, the moving people into cities basically moved people away from the farms where food was grown. So I think, you know, urbanization over the past 10,000 years has significantly negatively impacted the food system. And that's what we're trying to do with the Urban Farm Podcast and all the work that I do. And Stacey Murphy and her crew over in San Diego, the work they're doing, there's a lot of people that are doing incredibly great work to wake people up. That's really the what I do every day is I share stuff that has people wake up if they choose. You know, it's not my responsibility to have people wake up. It's my responsibility to share from my heart and share epic, cool stuff and then let them get sparked. Well, other than the idea that manual labor is kind of looked down upon, what are some other common misconceptions about or barriers to people growing even some of their own food within urban spaces? One of the big ones is that it's actually hard to grow food. And one of the things that I've talked about for years now is that this whole notion of lack, not having enough, only exists in one place. And that's between our ears. Because when I look at nature and I look at the abundance in my front yard and backyard, it's mind-blowing. I have carrots that have gone to seed. I, I did an experiment with a young man here who I thought was a little bit more trained than he was. And I gave him four ounces of carrot seeds last fall to go plant in my front yard. And four ounces of carrot seeds, there's probably 50,000 carrot seeds in the bag. And normally what you do is you put in a row of carrot seeds, you probably put 100, 150 carrot seeds down. He planted them all. So I have this forest of carrots that are going to seed in my front yard. And I honestly, I will probably get two to three pounds of carrot seeds off of these carrots. The abundance factor is mind-blowing. That, that's one of the things that people don't realize is that there's this amazing abundance and it's really simple to do if you know how to do it. That's why I give every spring and fall, I give a jumpstart your fall garden, jumpstart your spring garden to walk people through the three or four things that they need to know that gets them to a place of being able to make the right choices on how to grow food. This, so here in Phoenix, if you put a garden on a west side of a building, western exposures for gardens is going to pretty much put them under. If you put a garden on a west side of a block wall, you're going to cook it. You're absolutely going to cook it. So th making that choice up front on where to place your garden, that's a really important piece of this whole process. So I think just understanding how easy it is to grow food and then start getting the, you know, the pieces that you need in order to success successfully grow it where you're at. Especially for people living in urban spaces where they may feel like there's no need to grow their own food, given the convenience of being able to just walk out and buy food nearby. What would mm -hmm. you say are some of the ways that people would benefit from growing some of their own food in spite of the convenience that they may have? Benefits. Your food's more nutrient-dense because you're gonna grow it that way. Your food is free of contaminants like pesticides or herbicides because you're gonna grow it that way. 
it's fresher and more nutrient dense because you're picking it right off of the tree or vine or bush or right out of the ground. It just tastes better. And I'll tell you what, we with my fruit tree program, I talk to people a lot about fruit trees. And once you harvest a peach, a fresh ripe peach off of your own tree, you will never be able to buy one in the store again. It just <laughs> can't happen because you then you know what how amazing peaches can be or apples or apricots or plums or pears, cherries, all of these. They're just exponentially better when, you know, when you're actually growing it. Plus, there's the whole fact of, hey, I grew this. Right. Right? Plus kids. I'll tell you what. I've seen it over and over and over again in my podcast guests and in gardens and stuff. Kids that won't eat vegetables, once you have them growing it, they're all over it. On this note, um, this is, of course, definitely something that I'd like to get myself into. So for me and for our listener, if they aren't already experimenting with growing food, can you give us a brief lowdown of what we need to get started and perhaps the expenses involved with starting from scratch? Number one, you need to make sure that you know what exposure you're putting your garden in. Is it on the, an eastern exposure, western exposure, a northern exposure, and southern exposure? So determining that, determining that is going to inform you a lot. Number two thing is, and this is probably as important as exposure, and that's healthy soil. There's five components to healthy soil, and most of the time you probably just have dirt. Dirt is one component of healthy soil. There's dirt, airspace, water, organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. And the fix for most dirt gardens is just to add lots of compost, you know, which you'll end up doing every year. So picking the right location for your garden and then making sure that you have the right soil or build the right soil is, you know, is going to be imperative for your success. Can you give us a peek into like the costs involved? Sure. I actually, now this is 2008. So this is 11 years ago. I actually built a raised bed garden for a friend of mine. Uh, in fact, uh, I have the, vi I filmed the video of it 11 years ago and it's called Perry's instant garden. And I think that I spent $70 on setting up her garden. A bulk of that was the wood. So I basically bought two by 12s, so two inch wide, 12 inches tall. And I bought three of those at eight feet long. I cut one of them in half. So that gave me a four by eight foot rectangle. I placed it in her, you know, in her garden area where she wanted the wanted her garden at, and then we filled it with soil, healthy soil. And the clincher back then was healthy soil was a whole lot less expensive than it is today. So a four by eight garden, if you're adding a nice garden mix in there, you're probably going to spend $50, 40 or $50 on the wood and 50 to a hundred dollars on the soil to go in there. So call it, you know, back then I think I spent $70. Now, 11 years later, you're probably looking at 150 bucks for a four by eight garden bed, which by the way, you can grow a lot of groceries in. 
This actually segues really nicely into my next question for you. And of course, in regards to learning more about urban farming, we'll have to check out your educational resources at urbanfarm.org. But my next question for you has to do with our food deserts. One of the baffling things that I've been thinking about is how we can at the same time empower our underpaid small farmers and field workers by paying more for responsibly grown food if we have the means to do so, while also making healthy and fresh foods more accessible for people in low-income communities or food deserts. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we can best address our food deserts and make food more accessible and affordable to those without the means to buy organic and regenerative. Yeah, well, get people trained. It's really that simple. Get them inspired to grow their own food and get them trained. There are all kinds of local food systems that one can plug into. One of them that we're working on literally this month is our mesquite bean program. Mesquite trees are a desert tree, and they make a bean pod that's 6 to 10 inches long that is really sweet. And I have been wanting a mesquite bean hammer mill for about a decade, and they're not cheap. They run about $15,000, and we found a used one a year ago, which we bought, and we've been refurbishing it. And we do public community millings with it. So you can harvest a bucket of five pounds, a five-gallon bucket of beans, or two five-gallon buckets, and you can bring them to us, and we'll mill them. One of the things that's really needed here is when the chefs go looking for mesquite flour, they have to buy flour that's grown in Peru, and we're in Arizona, and that just doesn't quite make sense. So all of a sudden, we have this food-grade $12,000 mesquite mill that's going to sit in a warehouse 360 days a year, because we'll be using it probably five days a year, and mesquite flour can easily sell for 10 to $15 a pound. So this is a perfect opportunity for somebody to set up a project, a small business where they're harvesting mesquite beans, and there are literally tons of them out there to be harvested in wild areas, and making mesquite flour and then selling mesquite flour. And that's just one thing. There's a need for local herbs to be grown in most urban areas, specialty crops. And these are all things that can be set up in a you know, the specialty crops can be set up in six or eight hundred or a thousand square foot garden beds. And you could literally make a nice part-time living for very part-time work doing it. And really what there is to do is we need to, you know, back to your question, we need to get people inspired to do that. So to address the affordability piece of healthily grown food, people growing their own food is a lot more affordable than buying anything from the market. And I guess getting involved with that process itself is also educational. We know there are benefits to people interacting with the soil and just, you know, interacting with the land. So mm -hmm. I agree with you that, you know, growing more of our, of our own food is definitely a huge answer to a lot of our food problems. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've noticed that's really been interesting this season, there have been a lot of postings on Facebook from people that have gotten trees from me that have so much fruit they don't know what to do with it all. <laughs> so the cool thing is, is that we're the, the local food system is absorbing that. I, we had the biggest crop of apples I have ever seen this year. And, you know, I can only use so many apples. 
and I just put the word out and I had about a half a dozen people come and harvest apples and they made applesauce and apple butter and apple chips and you know and it was just it was just growing on trees here imagine that so to come full circle what do you think we need most perhaps at a societal level to be able to realize a world where people really do have food sovereignty and for those that are interested and are able to are really growing their own foods what do you think it'll take for us to get there everybody growing their own food or if you can't grow your own food, you could get a community garden plot. But if you can't grow your own food, make sure you know your farmer. Really locally support your farmer's markets and your farmers. And there are a lot of cool farmers out there doing amazing work. Hey, I just wanted to thank you sincerely for your huge heart and continued dedication to being the change that you want to see in the world. I know it's not always easy, but the world is a better place today because of you, and I'm truly honored that you're here. If Green Dreamer has become a part of your routine and you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month, which will also gain you access to extended content, that would be so immensely helpful, and I would so greatly appreciate that. You can head to greendreamer.com dot com slash support to learn more. Green Dreamer is also now on YouTube, and I hope to start doing some real-life field interviews soon, so I'm not just sitting here in my closet <laughs> staring at a screen and I can actually get out there and connect with people in real life. So if you're interested in staying posted on this, you can head to greendreamer.com slash YouTube to subscribe for free. For now, to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? I, you know, I like to be out in the yard and social media for me is a distraction. So I pretty much stay away from it. You know, my publication, the book that I mentioned earlier, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, anything by Daniel Quinn is amazing. I, I actually live what I call a Quinnian philosophy. I've shifted my philosophy to what he was talking about in all of his books. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I have on my list as of today, more things that I will ever get done in my entire life. And I add things on new things on it every day. So I, you know, I live a life of, Oh my gosh, what exciting thing do I get to do next? And I think it's, that's based in, the vision that I created myself for myself almost 30 years ago. And that's being the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. That gets me up. It gets me going. It gets me motivated. It gets me creating change. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Ah, that is an interesting question. (laughs) What you may not know is that I have Lyme disease and Lyme disease is debilitating and it's, something that our medical system doesn't address. They're expecting over a million new cases of Lyme disease this year. Mm -hmm. They're calling Lyme disease the first pandemic of global warming, global change, uh, because of the prevalence of ticks and how it's passed along. But a couple of things about Lyme that you may not know is that Lyme isn't a disease. Lyme is a sweet of diseases. There's a bunch of different bacteria, like six or eight or 10 different kinds of bacteria. And each one is, is treated differently. That's what makes it so hard to get rid of. 
Also, Lyme is a blood-borne disease in the same family as syphilis, which makes it sexually transmittable. Uh, you know, people don't know that either. And, uh, you know, check your resource. You can check, you know, online for that. But there's a lot of data, uh, even out of the CDC, about that. So all that being said, what I mostly do for my health to address the Lyme, and for me, it, I, I would say the Lyme affects me on a scale of 1 to 10, about a four every day. Mm. So, you know, I'm dealing with symptoms on a daily basis. And what I'm really working on these days is improving my gut flora, my biome, my, what I put in. Um, One of the big time bummers for me is that I can't drink wine anymore. I love (laughs) wine, but it's lime. When I drink wine, it significantly negatively impacts my health the next day. So being conscious of not, I can't eat gluten or bread that impacts me. If I eat too much sugar, that impacts me. So really what I do is I eat real healthfully every day. I eat out of the yard most every day and I'm working on, you know, my general health. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Oh my gosh. Urban Farm U, teaching people how to do this for themselves, inspiring people to you know, try something in the sustainability arena. In fact, I actually don't like the word sustainable. I think it's done its job and we need to move on. Because when you look at most sustainability practices that are espoused out in the world, shared out in the world, they don't solve the problem. They simply sustain the mess we've created a little bit longer. That's one of the reasons I love permaculture because permaculture looks at regenerative design. How do we create regenerative systems that recreate themselves like nature does? Mm. So, you know, what I'm working on every day is I do webinars and teach classes. We've got free online classes. We've got online courses that people can take on growing food. We do have a, our growing food, the basics course. It's, I think it's $67 for a seven week online class on how to grow food in your yard. And it addresses soil and you know what to do with all the abundance when you're harvesting and exposure and how to water it. It, it, it teach, it gives you the basics of how to get going in your garden. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I'm assuming I haven't met you face to face, but I'm assuming you're in the millennial generation. Yes, I am. <laughs> there is an amazing crew of people. Taylor Jenkins on my team, she's 26 and is amazing at what she does. That's what gives me hope. When I run across people like you and Taylor and other millennials that are embracing this work and running forward with it. Well, we would, of course, love to keep learning from you about urban farming and what we can do to get started. So where can we follow and uh, learn from you online? You can uh, check out urbanfarmu.org. That's where all of our classes are at. Urbanfarm.org is my main website, and that's a pointer directional to all of our free courses. If you sign up for our newsletter on the front page, I uh, I have a, an, an ebook called My Ordinary Extraordinary Yard that's available for you get that talks about my history and how the urban farm came to be. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? 
you know, this is really cliche, but just do it. Things happen because somebody says so. And the people that I look to put on my team, and I have some about a half a dozen absolutely amazing people that take on projects and get them done. And the way we change the world and the way we get things done in the world is somebody's got to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to do that. So go out and do it. Find a project, focus on it, get it done. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube now at greendreamer.com slash YouTube. Become a patron and access extended content by going to greendreamer.com slash support and subscribe to our weekly solutions-driven newsletter at greendreamer.com. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.